And so, Lord, um, as John preached repentance from sin, and as we are in that same tradition 2,000 years later, that we would not forget, each and every single one of us, that repentance is a gift, that it's a joy, that it's something that we get to do. It's not something we have to do, but it's a rediscovery of who you are. And so come, we trust that you will. In Christ's name, amen. amen. We have two points today. Presbyterians are real good with three points. I've been trying to pare it down. You know, we're in a transition season, you know, in the life of the world, life of the church. Uh, two points, questioning Jesus and the answer of Jesus. Point one, questioning Jesus. If you are a Christian or if you're interested in following Jesus, uh, no matter how long you've, you've been doing that, there, there always comes a time where the circumstances in your life begin to make you question if Jesus is going to come through for you, if he's going to do what he's actually said that he's going to do, if he actually is real. And that's where John is in our passage. He asked that famous question, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? We're always asking that question, regardless of who we are at all times, but that's a sermon for another day. But I want you to remember the point of John the Baptist's life. If you're unfamiliar with the scriptures, the point of John the Baptist was that he was a prophet of Jesus. His whole life was to reveal who Jesus was. That's why he was born into the world. His whole career, his whole identity was to do this thing called prepare the way of the Messiah, prepare the way of the Christ. Like that was his job description. And he's already said things about Jesus. Like in, in person, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And John actually baptized Jesus himself. He was his cousin. And John intimately knew who Christ was from the womb. And yet, what do we see here in our passage? He's not quite sure about him anymore. He's not quite so sure about the Messiah. And the reason why, every scholar will say, is because his life took a turn towards suffering. And Jesus, the Messiah, wasn't doing what he expected the Messiah to do. The reality did not meet with the expectations of what he had been reading in the scriptures or misreading in the scriptures his entire life, as we'll see. He was in prison because the religious leaders of the day were working with Rome, the people in power. Um, and, you know, John kept doing, doing things, telling very important people in his day to repent and they need to change their life. And they didn't like that, you know, for some reason. And so they got in league with this guy named Herod and they got him locked up. And so there John is in prison hearing talk about the Christ and attention to John and his ministry had begun to dramatically decrease and Christ's ministry and the attention directed toward Jesus had begun to increase, which is actually something that John predicted. But here in our passage, he asked his disciples who were visiting him in prison to go and ask Jesus that question. Are you the one? He's doubting. And he's questioning. And I just love this because it is now that John, even John the Baptist, can understand the gospel in a fresh, new way. This laid into his life and this close to his death. 
I have a friend who ministered in Portland, Oregon for a time. And we have this mutual friend who um, he said of our mutual friend who was kind of in a, a dark place, who had left ministry. He said, you know, I'm, I'm a little concerned about him because Portland has a way of molding you into its own form. Kind of just like engulfing you into its own culture. And my buddy was like, I just I hope he can remain a faithful Christian. Now, Jesus is about to denounce later on in our passage. He's about to denounce the cities that come from a biblical heritage that come from a long line of knowing the traditions of God. And he and he says things like if I had said and done these things in places like Tyre and Sidon, which were pagan cities, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Now, here's my question for you. Do you think that Nebraska has a mold that forms you into itself and that that mold might be as dangerous or more so than Portland? We cannot escape the human heart through our environment. Our mold here just says, I'm an honest person. I do right by people. I don't waste things. I'm good to my family. I'm a hard worker. And we never stop to think that the effect of the gospel on the human heart is not tied to anything outward at all. A difficult environment can only reveal what's always been true. And a quote-unquote easy environment can only hide what's actually underneath the surface. That's hard, right? Because we want to protect. I was always baffled by these churches. I, was pre- I would preach in these churches in Texas when I did campus ministry. And these nice church folks would come up to me and say, um, I'm so, I worked on this campus called the University of North Texas. It was pretty what was classified like as liberal or like really secular. And these uh, sweet old women and old men would come up to me and they say, I'm so glad you're on that campus. It's so secular. They really, really, really need the gospel there. And, the, the, you know, they didn't say this, but the implication was, and we don't need it as bad. And I was always baffled because, you know, I, I, would, I would just have celebrated the Lord's Supper with them, which is a testimony that the God of the universe who made everything had to be beaten and killed. And he bled for, for what's going on in my heart. The preacher, the churchgoer. And my question is, what could be worse than that? What's worse than that? Secular people? No. This is what the gospel is. And it cuts through, you know, what's so hard is that the line between good and evil cuts through and slices through the heart of every single human being, John the Baptist included. I mean, you can't get more holy than John, right? Come on. Talk about an isolationist. This brother wore weird stuff, you know, like straight from the animal, ate locusts. Who eats locusts? You know, 
I don't. It's gross. Now back, back to the passage. Um, here's John, and he's hearing stuff about Jesus. He's been locked up for like six months, most scholars think. His disciples are chirping in his ear, and he starts to get uncertain. Sit, sit with that just for a second. He is uncertain of Jesus. The prophet of Jesus is uncertain of Jesus. And I want you to look at what Jesus gives him. Look at this answer. He says, go back, go back and tell John, verse 5 and 6. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. It, you know, I wonder, it's like a simple yes would have been fine. <laughs> I am the one. Uh, well, what, what he's doing right there is that he's summarizing this entire tradition of the prophets of the Old Testament and, and saying, yes, John, I, I am the one and all those things that were promised in your tradition that I brought you up in, all of the things are coming to completion and fruition in my life. And it's clear from this list that the ones who receive the gospel as the good news for what it is are the weak, are the sick, are the dead, are the poor. And the reason why is that these are the types of people who intuitively hear and see what Jesus is doing and they get it. They get it. But the strong and the self-made, if you think you bring anything to the table, if you have focused on anything in you that separates you off from the rest of humanity, that makes you better than them, what's going to happen is that Jesus is going to offend you. He will offend you. He's offensive. That's why he says, you're blessed if you're not offended by me. What's, what's offensive about Jesus? Well, he says that thing in our hearts is not just like, one of those like, yeah, I mess up every now and then and I'm I'm not perfect. But, you know, like I bring I bring something to the table. He's like, no, what's what's in every human heart is what's in John's heart, that we will question Jesus the moment that he doesn't do what we expect him to do. And we always do that when we suffer. Because it hurts. John was Jesus's right hand man and he's been locked up and Jesus is supposed to be the king of the world. Why doesn't he come and rescue him? He's questioning. And when life doesn't go our way, this is what it means to to mold Jesus into our own form. That when life doesn't do what we want it to do, we try to squeeze Jesus into our own form and we say, deliver Deliver in the way that we want you to deliver. And Jesus doesn't. And do you know why? It's because he wants you to know who's king in your life. He wants you to know, he wants me to know that repentance is always a gift every single day that we get to remember who's king. That we get to test ourselves and to see if, if we are ourselves are offended by Jesus. John was offended by Jesus. 
Blessed are those who are not offended by me, says Jesus. One time there's somebody in my family that got an anonymous newspaper clipping of a detailed diet. I think it was like the Atkins diet. You guys remember that one? Um, and, and as I was watching my family member receive this, you know, very passive <laughs> approach to a hard reality, they were offended, right? And the reason why is because even if you didn't think you were overweight, someone else does, and that's like just as bad or maybe even worse, right? And here, here's the gospel. The gospel's offense is that, this is what it says into the life of every human being, there's something terribly wrong with you and me. And you need help. And that's not just like a one-time thing. That's an everyday thing that you must come back to that reality every single day that you wake up. And it's not like you graduate. It's not like you can read your Bible enough like John. It's not like you can give up enough. The dude was in prison. I mean, who of us, who of us in this room have been in prison for the sake of Christ? John did it all. And yet, there's some offense there left in his heart that needs to be dealt with. Even in this dark hour of his life, even in the prison cell. And the, the beauty of Jesus is that when John has that question, Jesus doesn't say, like, how dare you ask that question, John? No. Jesus is fine with the questions. He doesn't dismiss any doubt. He doesn't. But then he points John back to, to rethink the, the very foundation of his upbringing, to rethink what his life's commitments were. And he's, he's telling John and showing him, look, cousin, he's Jesus' cousin. Cousin, he says this about John. You are the greatest human being born of a woman. That's pretty, that's pretty good, right? That's like the goat, right? And yet you're confused. You're in doubt. John was receiving a diet in the mail, okay? And it said, you need to change. You, the preacher of repentance, needs to repent. Even in this dark, dark time, everyone must. Everyone must come to Jesus with complete neediness. And if you will, if you will, anyone can handle the offense of the gospel. But if you won't, as the rest of chapter 11 will show you, that judgment on your very body and soul will be unbearable. It will be full of unrest because you have to prove yourself. You have to build something based upon what you can fabricate and what you do or don't do and how good you are or how much you avoid bad stuff. And it's a judgment of your own making and it will crush you. It'll crush you. Thinking that you can bring anything to God that's going to make him more or less happy with you is a way of seeking to control the God of the universe. And Jesus says, John, you must embrace my kingship over your life, which is that you must be willing. You must be willing to discard all the things that you've ever done for me. Discard them. You've been obedient, my cousin, to prison. But now, all that you thought you were certain about, you must give it to me. And you will not find rest until you do. It's so very subtle. The, the gospel says, don't be certain about your own certainty. Be certain about Jesus' certainty. 
That's the very essence of faith. Faith not in yourself, but in somebody else. There was a guy named Bart Moseman who was the campus minister of RUF at UNL here. There's a long line of prophets in this room that come from that same tradition. Um, and, you know, Bart's, Bart's last, very last sermon was the week that I met Sarah. Um, and I was introduced to Nebraska during this time. And this was a, this sort of like a capstone of his whole ministry when I came up. And he was, he was preaching on the Gospel of John. And me and my friend, who was an intern through RUF, we were heading into hear his last sermon. And we saw a female student. We're like, hey, you want to come to large group? And uh, she's like, sure, okay. And so she comes, and it's clear that, like, she doesn't get the whole Christian thing, you know? She's like, this is weird. And uh, then she starts, as, as Bart's preaching, it's super sentimental, you know? Like, he had loved these students. He had formed this whole ministry for, like, 12, 13 years. Uh, he gets so moved by the text, he's looking out at the students, that he starts crying through the text. And this girl sitting beside us starts, like, laughing out loud, about his, like, you know, emotion. It, it was, like, very, very, like, offensive. And I was just like, Shh, you know, like, it's not what Christians do, you know. <laughs> um, and I, I just walked away from that night thinking, you know, there's, there's always going to be someone there to laugh at and to make a mockery of your life's efforts. And if that's true, what is still... What is still true of you in that moment? That all that you've given, all the love that you've given to people, all of the obedience that you've given to God is laughed at and it's made a mockery. You know what's true? Is that God still loves you and it hasn't altered at all. And that those moments that seem so harsh are like painful gifts because it helps you remember that it's all grace. And that if you build your identity on anything else, even the stuff that you do for God, it is not built on a firm foundation. And this is what scholars have called, you must have what's called an alien righteousness. It's outside of you. It's not in you. And that righteousness must cover you. And you can't do anything to get it. The gospel's effect is independent of your sacrifices that you've made for God or for other people. It is a sheer gift. If it could be earned, you couldn't call it grace. Now, we enjoy that grace when we actually do have faith, but that faith itself is a total gift. And this is what Jesus tells John in verse 4 and 6, that here's what's true, John, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, what the gospel does in the world and its effectiveness is completely independent of people scoffing or applauding you. Jesus is going to do what he's going to do, despite your faith or doubt, because he's the king. And whether you believe in the gospel or not will always be tested in your life because we all come into this world thinking like, I mean, I deserve a little respect. You know, like I bring a little bit to the table. A little bit, right? And Jesus says, through me, through me, you will gain all the respect in the world, but you must lose your own. 
Through me, y'all, through me, you can gain the surest faith in the world, but you must discard how faithful you think you are. That's what must be thrown away. And do you know who understands all this stuff intuitively? Like just intuitively? Babies. <laughs> That's what Jesus is going to say later on in the past. It's like a little, little bit of children. The poor. Those who are super sick and needy. And the reason why is because those types of people only know how to take and take and receive. And they can't give anything back. They don't have any beauty or strength or money or goodness to offer. All they do is take. And Jesus says, that's how you must come to me. I don't know why there is there is like a proliferation of homeless people in Lincoln right now. I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but um, have you ever helped a homeless person out? Like, you know what they say. What do they say? God bless you. Why do you think a homeless person says that? Why is it on their signs? Why do, you, why do you think that the blessing of God is there in the homeless person? It's about giving. That's right. And when you open your hand to a homeless person, what you're doing is that you're opening your heart to God and you're seeing the gospel. And there, of course, there's a way to give to the poor to pat yourself on the back. There's also another way to give to the poor to remember who you are before God to remember that we are all this desperate and in the end we either beg and plead for mercy or we become too proud to think of ourselves that way uh, my friend was uh, preaching on this text a couple of weeks ago that, that text in the gospel of Mark where, where this dad brings a son to Jesus and he, he's struggling to believe and he says I believe but help my unbelief and my, my buddy was reaching out to a bunch of other pastors in this group that we have. And he says, y'all, I just need some encouragement or prayer because, like, to be honest, like, I, I just, I don't think that God does great things anymore today, if I'm just being completely honest. Um, and so, and I got to get up here and preach this text, you know. Uh, and he's like, I know, I know that's what this passage is about and that it's there for my unbelief, but I just need some help. And he said he preached a sermon and it was fine. And then the next day, he, he's like, I got to tell you guys another story. Um, I was sitting down with somebody in the congregation who wanted to get coffee with me. And a little background is that he, he'd given us a little background of his financial situation. He had always been in and out of these ratty cars. And this guy wanted to sit down and talk with him about his car situation. And so he sat down and he said, look, man, I, I am in like a for-profit type deal in my life and you're not. And it just works out in such a way that like I have more than enough. And I want you to take this money and you can use it for whatever you want to use it for. But I hope you buy a car with it. And my buddy went home. He's like, as I was a little scared to look into the envelope and he gives it to his wife. And it was $30,000 in cash. He's like, I was trepidatiously thankful. And, you know, look, look, uh, pastors have used stories like this to, like, really manipulate congregations. We're in a great spot. Uh, the church is in a great spot. We don't need nothing right now, okay? Um, why do you think I, I told you a certain, like, why do you think, what do you think God was doing in my friend's life there? 
What do you think he was doing in my, my heart through that story? What do you think he's doing in your heart through that story? I love that because he received the blessing in the middle of doubt, not in the midst of his faith. And what I want you to know is that when life, when life strips you down and you're asking the question that John the Baptist asked, you know, are you the one, the way that my buddy asks is like, do you still do great things, Jesus? Like Jesus invites that level of honesty and we always want this church to be Redeemer, to be a place where your doubts and your questions are so, so welcome. We want for even the longest standing Christian in the room to ask when life strips you down, like, is, is this really true? Is it? And it is then that Jesus likes to work with you and he tends to give you answers in ways that make you trepidatiously thankful and uncomfortable. Like my buddy wasn't like, oh, sweet, $30,000. He's like, oh my gosh. Like, that's like a game changer for us. And what Jesus did with John the Baptist was the same thing, even though we don't quite get it. He, he answered him in such a way that would have made perfect sense for John's upbringing and his doubt. And he tells John, go back to what you've always known. Go back to the very root and structure and rethink it. Who gave you life? John, who gave you the ministry that you've lived out? Who gives you cars as well as faith? It's all a gift. And you know, if you've ever had an encounter with God like this, it's in those moments that there is, there's this release. It's a release of control. It's a, it's a release of trying to rule your life. And this is the paradox. It's in the worst moments of your life that you tend to have the best moments with God. Y'all know this. When stuff gets shooken, God shows up. And the reason why is because you let go of all the stuff that you've been trying to build your life on that isn't God. And this is what suffering and trauma can do. Trauma can, can either make you bitter or you can use trauma for what I, what I want us to think about as the compost of hope. You know what compost is? You know, when stuff gets bruised and it's almost about to die, where do you take it? You take it to the back of your yard to get it out of the way, right? And then what, what does it become? It becomes the greatest seedbed for the growth the next season. And I have seen so many people just get used and torn up by their trauma and it turns them into cynics and isolationists. But I've also seen others. I've seen others who use their trauma and suffering for the growth of love that they have for other people. And the love that they have for God, it becomes the seedbed for beauty. People like Rachel Den Hollander, if you know who that is. People like Indra Brockman in this room. And so many others in this congregation. And I want to close up here and tell you, um, as, you know, <laughs> as a millennial, I really, you know, we can have questions. We can have questions. Jesus invites honesty. Um, but I'm speaking to my demographic right now. Uh, there is an answer. There is an answer. And Jesus says, there is a structure and foundation of which I embody that I am the answer. 
And Jesus is neither hindered by our questions, nor does he leave us in our questions. But he says, come, come to me. I am the one and you don't have to look for another. That's what this passage is about. I'm going to pray and then uh, Steve Allen's going to come up here and uh, lead us in time of confession and assurance. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We um, confess that we are so often offended by it. That when somebody comes at us and says anything about uh, how we're living, <laughs> uh, our, our, the way in which we move through the world, uh, anything that we've done that we maybe shouldn't have done, if, if somebody comes at us, we're offended. And we, and we forget, Lord, that good grief, there's so, much, there's so much wickedness in my heart. Of course it's probably true. Of course I've done things to hurt you and to hurt other people. And Lord, help us to see that when... Uh, when suffering comes, when trauma comes, when some, some form of exposure comes, that that is the pathway to see you, Lord Jesus, for who you are, to see your power and know that you didn't come in power, but you came in weakness so that you can relate to us and so that you could save us. And so, Lord, please help us not to forget that we need saving. Please help us not to forget that the very foundation of what you've always said um, is true and solid and that we don't have to fabricate our own reason for living. And so we'll do that. Love.